To paraphrase Hunter S. Thompson, when you get locked into a serious beer collection, the tendency is to push it as far as you can. Cheers. Son of a bitch! Give me a drink! Welcome back to the Tap Takeover Podcast. We've got another episode on the road. We're in Green Bay for our brewer interview series. It's going to be a family affair today. We've got the Noble Roots Brewing Company here in Green Bay, Wisconsin. We're going to be sitting down with Marvin Falish, Head of Sales and uh, Taproom Operations. We've got Alex Falish, his son, as uh, Head of Brewing Operations, and his son-in-law, Jordan Sullivan, Head of Finance. How are you guys doing today? Great. Well, how are you? Thanks for coming. Thank All right, so we'd like to just jump right into it. We've got a few questions just about the opening of the brewery, because you guys are brand new so we really want to get into that and, and what the reception has been so what, what have you guys seen from uh, the community here how are they embracing you it's been pretty awesome so far um, we've only been open about two months open march 2nd and to be honest we've been busier than expected we have a pretty small brewery and tap room the building itself is only 1400 square feet and a little over half of that is tap room and a lot of nights we are uh, pretty packed yeah we've been i think the first eight or nine weeks we've been we never we expect to be busy but not the numbers of people coming out then also it's kind of been nice for us it's been a, um, a wide variety of age group from 20 to 70 and from all over wisconsin from wausau from shano from green bay 21 very good demographic for age wise for us so what led you guys into brewing well we um we started off as homebrewers, obviously, like many others, but it kind of started before then, actually. We took a family trip to Europe in 2007. My other brother-in-law, who is not here, who is our head of marketing, Tyler, was studying abroad, and uh, I think it was near Amsterdam. And when we went over there, we, we kind of hit the a lot of the main brewing countries. It was... We started in, in Amsterdam. We went over to Brussels and Bruges, Belgium. So we had some of the great Belgian beers there. And then uh, made our way over to Germany and had, had their, their great lagers over there. And, and it really got us inspired uh, as a family to start trying to make beers like we had over there. And up until that point, we were all pretty much light beer drinkers, other than Alex, who was not of age yet. <laughs> in Green Bay, you can be 20. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, great. Um, so yeah, when Tyler came back home after after school, and we started home brewing, and uh, in the garage, like many others, and over time, we just we upped our investment in equipment. We started studying a little bit more about the science behind it, uh, to the point where we wanted to enter a lot of our beers into competitions, and um, that's when we got a lot of the the feedback, kind of the non-friend and family feedback that we so desperately needed and wanted. We, we got some really good marks. We we won won a couple awards. Uh, started getting uh, some some praise from some of the local brewers when we poured through the homebrew uh, uh, club here at some of the local beer fests, and then we decided, what the heck? You know, we, every homebrewer has a dream to to do this, but I think we had a unique combination of you know a lot of experience and also some of the business skill sets that complement each other to to try to make a go of it. Because we we all understood that it's this is just as much running a business than it is brewing beer. Does anyone have any experience working on the commercial side prior to starting? No. Uh- 
Uh, we didn't. My dad, Marvin, worked for the Budweiser distributor in town for 22 years. But outside of that, uh, that, that sales experience definitely helps. Jordan works in commercial banking and I work in logistics and operations. So those are the, really the skill sets. So while we didn't have the professional brewing experience, going with a system this size, being only seven barrels, it was kind of just you know, an oversized homebrew system. Right. And, the, and the homebrew system that we had, that we ended up with, was really a small-scale commercial system anyways. It had a lot of the, the temperature controls, pumps. Um, it was a you know, higher, higher uh, volume than, than some. We can brew a keg at a time. And in fact, we utilize that system in our brewery today as part of our garage series that we've just started coming out with, which is a, a small batch series that we're going to do every few weeks to kind of test our brewing chops a little bit. Yeah, as, as Alex mentioned, you know, the, the scale up for us, you don't want to short sell it. There, there's certainly a, some kinks to work out, obviously, but a lot of it was math and, you know, and just playing around a little bit beforehand. No, yeah, no, no professional experience, but, you know, seven, eight years of, of studying texts and listening to podcasts like yours, you know, that, that can go a long ways. We'll go a little bit more on what Jordan had said is, um, you know, the steps we took, we, we brewed on the stove for a couple of years and got better. And then we brewed, you know, in the garage with a turkey burner underneath you know, in, in a cutout half barrel for a couple of years, you know, and then we went to a an, an small all-grain kind of a uh, brewing out of a grain in a bag for a while. So every time we did that, we got better at what we were doing until we got to that small professional system that we have. And then once we mastered that, then, you know, making that transition makes it a lot easier because we kind of took our times jumping those steps. What, when I introduced myself and I told you about the podcast, I thought that was interesting that you said you actually learned a lot from podcasts. So like, mm-hmm. what did you, I guess, specifically learn from that? What are your favorites? Um, a lot of the stuff we listen to, Beersmith, the Beersmith podcast, we use Beersmith software for designing recipes. We have for a few years as homebrewers, and we found that you know a lot of breweries this size still use the software. The scaling up can be, it can make it a little easier, but not all of the formulas work. On top of that, we listen, I know I listen to a few different shows on the Brewing Networks, the Jamil Show, Brewing with Style. Brew Strong. Um, Brew Strong, for sure. And then when I get a little bored with the technical piece, listen to the session for a good laugh. Um, I have a really long commute to my other job, so I get to listen to a lot of podcasts. Including the Tap Takeover podcast. Of course. That's right. That's right. Yeah, another one that we we listened to was the business of beer, and that kind of helped, you know, just understanding the industry a little bit, some of the dynamics around the business side of it, which which helped as well. But I think on all of our Christmas lists for a long time were uh, various beer books, you know, and so How to Brew by John Palmer and, you know, um, gosh, the You've invested in some some uh, technical books like the you know the water yeast series yeah, from some uh, brewers publications. So yeah, there's a lot out there. There really is, and you can you can learn a lot through textbooks. But then you have to translate it obviously to to the practical experience, which we you know we brewed probably every other week for seven years. Did so, you have any other challenges scaling out like uh, when you initially started out? Yeah, well, dumps or? we had some uh, some equipment issues. The, our burners were a little closer to the ground than our flooring guy had expected, so we had some cracking uh, epoxy for the first few brews, but we fixed that. The nice thing was, prior to deciding on what company to go with for equipment, I think we talked to seven different equipment manufacturers, and the one we ended up going with gave us a list of 
six breweries that bought the same exact equipment. Because of my job, I was able to, I was in Oklahoma and was able to travel to one of those breweries, Beaver's Bend Brewery in Broken Bow, Oklahoma. So middle of nowhere, Oklahoma. <laughs> and uh, able to brew with them, which was really helpful just to get a little better feel for the equipment. Because you can look at diagrams all you want, and unless you actually get around the equipment, it's, it's not easy. So uh, on our podcast, we really like to encourage our brewers to tell their brewery story through their beers. So uh, if no Roots were to take over the taps at the Tap Takeover podcast, which of your beers would you choose to tell that story? You know, I think, you know, this is a kind of a little bit of a cop-out answer, but, you know, we developed our, our six core recipes for a reason, and we feel like they tell a story in and of themselves. They're all, from an alcohol standpoint, an ABV standpoint, between 5 and 7%, so we, we wanted to develop styles that were not too overwhelming to the palate, but also not too thin, and then kind of a cross-range of styles. You know, you go from our Hatsburg Pretender, which is, you know, which is a, a Pilsner in but it's not lager. You know, we use ale yeast with that beer. So that's kind of on one end of the spectrum. And on the other end, you have our Midnight Confection, which is our chocolate stout we use um, cocoa nibs in. And then in between, you have a couple different IPAs, both using citra hops. The Cardinal IPA is one that yeah, I, I think all of us would say it's, it's one of, if not our favorite, that we make. And that one really, we kind of kind of went for it on that one, Alex. I mean, he, he came up with the recipe, and it was a lot of caramel malts mixed with citra hops. And we're, you know, we're kind of thinking, geez, is this going to work together? It's a lot of flavor, but uh, I think that tropical fruit from the hops and the uh, the caramel toffee from the from the heavy caramel malts they work well together for whatever reason, and so that's that's one that we're quite proud of. Our Mackinac Island Amber, Marv, you you have, you can tell the story of that uh, one. And our, our Mackinac Island Amber is probably probably the first beer we made. I mean, besides the first beer that wasn't a kit, and it was all because of my, our, my oldest son Tyler was actually going there to that island to visit a friend that was in a band, and he wanted to make a five gallon batch, put it in bottles, and bring it over there for all his friends. Very unique is that we use fresh ginger and bitter orange peel to make it so to give it that, that the flavor we've probably made that 10 12 times before we actually decided it was going to be a core as you can tell a lot of our cores have a story behind and that one was an automatic to be one of ours because of the story behind it i mean it was probably the first beer that we've made ever that was actually going to be we thought would go somewhere for us and it's also nobody else has actually tried to do something using a fresh ginger which can vary in flavor because depending on how fresh it is mm-hmm. and then using bitter orange peel so that was kind of a unique system for brand for us to make and that one's changed a lot over time i don't particularly remember the very first one because I, w- I wasn't super involved in the brewing at that point because i was probably i don't know 16 at the time <laughs> um but i do recall stories of it being gingery edging on hot so as we've gone along that especially the, the ginger portion of that has come down a lot so it's it's still relatively balanced it's we want the the ginger to come through with a little bit of the citrusy orange, but still balanced with the malt, like a like a true uh, amber would. So a long way of saying that we you know we developed our our core platform essentially for a potential tap takeover, you know because they all kind of they have a purpose for for where they're where they kind of fit in the beer world. <laughs> well, it's it's what we love. We love yeah. to hear the stories behind the beers and where the inspiration really came from. Yeah. So yeah, perfect answer, guys. So we know a little bit about the background, your background kind of your motivation for getting started. Let's talk about this building. What made you decide to open here? What were some of the challenges? I'll kind of address that a little bit. Is, um, this was probably our third, actually was our third location we looked at. We had looked at a building in the downtown area of Green Bay. Very historic building, very cool, very old. We actually were 
getting really close to being in that building and then some issues came up with some sprinkler system with the state and it fell through. Uh, we looked at a different location similar to this location, small, that we would have to do a lot of work on. And again, because of some parking issues, it kind of just didn't work out. Funny how we found this location. I happened to be driving down the road and got a phone call from my other job. Had to pull in a parking lot to actually um, open my laptop and look something up. And I'm looking up at this building and going, hmm. So I kind of shot Alex a text and I said, hey, 2790 University, check this out. And probably within 15 minutes, he came back, oh, no, 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 too small. We can't make this work. I think it was about five hours later, yeah. he stopped home and he had a drawing on, hey, we can actually make this work. The location was actually started out in 68 as a gas station for a very short time, about seven years as a gas station. From 75 to now, it's gone through probably six or seven different businesses have been in here. But it always looked like original gas station. You know, how it's located with the garage doors and stuff like that. We had to go through some zoning issues with the city of Green Bay in order to make it to see if we could actually do what we wanted to do, to get it zoned differently. And then um, kind of once we got through that process and approved by the city, and then also approved by the neighbors because we're actually nestled into a, a residential area, we were able to purchase the building, which at the time had been empty for a couple of years, it was used for storage. And we always laugh, we opened, the we opened the door and the first thing we saw was a stock car in one of the stalls. It's like, okay, what are we doing? Here. But the second you know, thing we saw was a case of old homebrew, and we're like, okay, this was meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, I mean, it's a lot of the issues we had being an old, once we were able to purchase the building back in May, a lot of the issues was the fact that it was a block old gas station that there was really nothing to it. Cinder block with a brick front front on it, walls where we didn't think there'd be walls, concrete walls that had to be knocked out. But, you know, we all had ideals that we'd been kind of looking at for years of what we wanted it to look like. Talking to a bunch of people we know, we had a lot of help. Our wives and girlfriends, you know, giving ideas of what they wanted to look like. It kind of all fell together. So basically, we gutted the building completely. And then started from a block building, you know, and then built it up from there. Yeah, it certainly doesn't look like a gas station anymore. <laughs> no, I mean, it was taken down to down to the bones for sure. There were a lot of things we needed to do to it. There were two roofs on this place. Both weren't to code. We had to rip both of those off. Then a hot, hot August day, we were up there with a bunch of uh, bunch of friends tearing that off. So uh, literally blood, sweat, and tears yeah. into this building. <laughs> Decent <laughs> amount of blood. <laughs> Who helped with the interior design? Is this uh, you guys design the insides? Or, I mean, it's yeah, very it's classy. Very much a family ordeal. So it was the three of us, as my dad mentioned, spouses, my girlfriend, everyone came together with ideas. We have a family friend who's a carpenter. So a lot of wood in the building, uh, covering beams, an entire wall underneath the bar. So he did all of that with uh, some mindless labor help. That's us. Um, kind of putting it together. And he really took our, our ideas and brought them to execution. And we also had a general contractor that would basically, for some of the structure and mechanical things that had to be done when you're knocking out concrete walls to open up spaces there's some things that had to be followed you know some of the other things you know the floor the bar top being concrete was done by through our general and even the girls we have, like said we have a brick wall that actually the girls did the brick wall they actually said okay we want to do this and they got up on scaffolding and they built the brick wall wow. for the inside yeah the exposed brick is a really nice touch yeah so uh, let's talk about that family affair. Uh, not not every son and not every son-in-law would uh, run out to get in get into business with their dad, right? So, uh, what what is that family dynamic like? You, you guys seem like a really close family. Yeah, so we've uh, we've always been a close family. Homebrewing all this time together, um, a lot of summer days, afternoons spent at the family pool, playing lawn games, obviously drinking homebrew in the backyard. So we we, we had spent a lot of time together before. Obviously, now we're spending you know thirty 
30 plus hours a week together, so it changes it a little bit, but it's it's been pretty great. Yeah, I've been in this family since I was, you know, basically in college, so, you know, this, this feels like family to me, and it has for a long time, and so for me to jump in and get into business with these guys, what I was most excited about, well, one, one just we, we all just enjoy beer and talking about beer, and that's, that's table stakes, but what was nice... I think for us is that we looked around the room and you know I kind of mentioned before the, the complementary business skill sets we all have a lot of different skills that we bring to this business you know Alex is very good from a you know a process standpoint brewing and, and the recipe development Marv with his sales background and me with my finance background and we had a lot of the the necessary skill sets and 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 one person that you know we we've talked about a little bit Tyler as our head of marketing you know he he started us out in home brewing and you know he he kind of got the ball rolling and he's played a big role even though he's you know he's in new york city now he does all of our social media our websites and you know this is a brand business and tyler understands that we all now understand that and he spent a lot of time purposely thinking about how we were going to reach out to the community and i think that's a big reason for our early success is because we've built kind of a following from when we we anticipated opening and about October of last year, and because of the permitting process being a little delayed for us, it, it took us until uh, to March to open. But we used that time in between essentially to market and brand ourselves. So for me, that was a big part of it: is that we all kind of we could draw on each other's strengths to, to kind of fill in fill in the gaps a little bit. We all have day jobs, you know, and so we all need to chip in together to make this work. A lot of it was just we needed a lot of bodies to do it, <laughs> and so we have a lot of family nearby, and all pitching in. You know, and the other part of that too is that mm-hmm. we, we, we talk about you know the, people see us three a lot, but they don't see it. But they don't see like Jordan said, they don't see Tyler. And Tyler being in New York kind of keeps us in check a lot. Also, is that <laughs> hey, what are you guys doing? Why are you doing this? Our wives and you know and future you know Alex's fiance and my daughter Megan's uh, fiance, they they kind of also they're, they're a big part of the fact is that they could also step back and not look at when we were looking at strictly financial stuff or building stuff. They were looking at ideals on how to decorate it. They were looking at ideals on you know what are we going to do in apparel. What are we going to do for for outside? What are we going to do for you know for inside design? A lot of what they did also people don't see it, don't know about, but they were a big part in helping us get to this point. Absolutely, and they continue to be a big part because they're also here working when you know when we're working. And people I think are understand that there's there's always someone behind us that was helping us on it. <laughs> Well, let's, uh, let's talk about that branding that you just mentioned. You know, one of the really cool things is when our listeners look you guys up on, on your website, nobleroots.com, uh, they're going to see a fantastic logo that you guys have put together. Where did the name come from? We're really interested to hear this story. Sure. You know, we've talked about family 17 times so far. So <laughs> we re- obviously really wanted to focus on that aspect of it. So um, we had talked about doing something family tree related like that and that's where we got to roots the noble piece so you know we we think of noble not as like you know king and queen we think of it as high quality high standards and on top of that um so my dad is uh, 100 belgian my mom is german and irish and jordan is irish and english and and uh and german as well so kind of the noble brewing countries and it took us before we even got into serious planning for the brewery we had already started to talk about names and it probably took us a year, and every time we got a name that we liked, we it was taken. Yeah, with with uh, probably.
probably from the time we started unofficially planning to now, three thousand breweries open. So lots of names are <laughs> lots of names are taken. It was probably the the most drawn out part of yes. the, yeah. our opening. I mean, we, we we are all in agreement on the the business model we wanted, which was a tap room focused neighborhood brewery. But the the name just kept stressing us out because we did so want to draw on the family part of it and how we're going to tie that in to make it you know not sound hokey. But yeah, it it, it kind of came together. And the other benefit with the the whole noble part of it is you know the whole tying in noble hops from from Germany and some of those countries that that ties in a little bit as well and so when we talk about it we mention noble hops as well so so are there any plans to brew a beer with all noble hops yeah I'm, yeah we'll probably start something out on our garage series our small batch series at some point we're still trying to we've only done one so far the second one is in the fermenter right now and uh, I think we have the third one the style picked out no recipe yet uh, so it's definitely something we'll do you want to tell us a little bit more about that garage series what sure. uh, yeah so what what do we have in the works if we're taking over the taps you know you gotta you gotta throw something a little crazy on <laughs> okay. there so you get the beer nerds out what uh, what what do you guys got in the works okay so so I'll, I'll first introduce the garage series we brought over to this building our old homebrew system so 15 gallon pump fed system really easy to use really fun to use we're able to brew on it while brewing on our commercial system and we wanted to use it as a way to introduce some new beers without having to make seven barrels at a time and either make beers that could potentially be full batches at some point or things that were completely off the wall. So the first one we did was Belgian double with wildflower honey and blackberry puree. So definitely not something that's going to be on the seven barrel system, something a little off the wall. Our second one is also a Belgian beer. It's going to be a... Tyler's going to be mad at me for this one, but yeah, I'll, break, we haven't actually released what it's news. going to be yet. It is actually, it's going to come out on uh, the Friday of Green Bay Craft Beer Week, so a little over two weeks away, or a little less than two weeks away. So it's going to be a Belgian Saison with uh, dry hopped with cool melon, so one of the new German hops. That's It's a mix of, it's a, out of their breeding programs, it's a noble hop and cascade breed. So I think there's there's three hops that have come out of that program, cool melon, Hallertau Blanc, and... Mandarina Bavaria. Mandarina Bavaria. So Cool Melon gives some honeydew and strawberry character. So we're going to dry hop the, the heck out of a Cezanne. To run the garage series, it kind of that fell in line when that was developed. We brewed out of the garage at my house, and we moved into a garage to build a brewery. So having the garage series, that name kind of fell right in character of, what, of where, where we're at. Very cool. Absolutely. Okay. I think this is a good time to try some of your beers, and we'll take a little break, do a little tasting, and we'll be right back after some beer news. Welcome to Beer News. The Beer News Beer of the Week is Idiot Farm by Carbon 4. This fruit juice, hop sap, imperial IPA is only available June through August and has been a guest tap at Toppling Goliath's Morning Delight release party. The first batch just hit stores this past Monday and the Tap Takeover podcast crew encourages you to give this one a try. Be careful though, it's a sneaky 8.4 ABV that can really creep up on you on a warm summer day. Alright, and new beer news. Untitled Art, an offshoot of Octopi Brewery, recently released Hazy Double IPA and Coffee Stout. Also, with the great success of Hazelnut, they have teamed up with Microphone Brewing again for a creation called Creamsicle IPA. Be on the lookout for Creamsicle near the end of June. Mobcraft is releasing a new brew called Clam McDougal on June 30th at Draft and Bessel. This scotch barrel-aged scotch ale sounds like it could be a big hit. Henry Schwartz himself gave us the lowdown on this release. Lakefront has announced 
names and release the labels of two beers in their new IPA series, Mangy Rabbit and Tiny Feet, are both double IPAs that come in at 8.8% ABV. No word is out on flavor profiles just yet. Goose Island has announced the 2017 Bourbon County Stout Line. There will be seven brands of Bourbon County this year. Highlights include a reserved barley wine, aged two years in their 2015 rare barrels, Bourbon County Reserved, aged in 11-year-old Knob Creek barrels, Northwoods, a blueberry almond stout, and the Illinois-only Proprietors or Prop Stout, which this year is a flavor resembling Bananas Foster. In festival news, Christmas is always in July for the TTP crew, and that's because of Firkenfest, our favorite Milwaukee beer festival. On Saturday, July 22nd, you can find the Tap Takeover podcast at Cathedral Square at 3 p.m. for VIP and throughout the festival enjoying all the rare firkins and talking beer to whoever will listen. Not familiar with what a firkin is? Well, a firkin is actually a small barrel of beer that is one-fourth the size of a standard full barrel of beer. As opposed to a standard beer barrel which contains 30.96 gallons, a firkin full of cask ale will only contain a volume of roughly 10.79 gallons. A firkin is typically dedicated to housing true ale, an example of cask condition ale, or beer that has not been cold filtered, pasteurized, and carbonated by outside equipment. The ale beer that is housed inside the firkin is naturally carbonated by its resident yeast and its ingredients have not been processed in any way outside of simple fermentation by the yeast. No two firkins will ever be the same regardless of using the same ingredients. So make sure to put this festival on your list for July 22nd. Saturday, July 29th is Milwaukee Beer Fest at the lakefront. Enjoy some great beers and enjoy the scenic environment right next to Lake Michigan. Saturday, August 12th in Madison is one of the best beer festivals in the nation. Great taste of the Midwest. This iconic festival features the best of the best Midwest breweries who all bring their tastiest and also hardest to obtain beers. People camp out to purchase hard copy tickets to this one, folks, and the mail-in ticket lottery only gets you about a 10% chance of getting tickets. Great Taste Eve has also become an event upon itself, with almost every bar hosting a tap takeover. For two days in August, Madison, Wisconsin becomes a mecca to beer lovers everywhere, and people travel from all over the country to attend. If you are one of the lucky ones who got tickets, say hi to Alex, Andy, or Jim if you see us in our tap takeover podcast gear. If you still need tickets, we have heard stories about them being sparsely available at some of the tap takeovers or folks selling extra tickets in line. So make sure to check out Great Taste, folks. You will not be disappointed. And this has been Beer News. Thanks, Andy, for, I think, the best beer news yet. So we're back with uh, the gentleman from Noble Roots, and we're going to do a little side-by-side tasting of their two IPAs on tap here. So we've got the Noble Roots IPA and the Cardinal IPA. Why don't you tell us a little bit what we should be tasting in these? Okay, so those two beers actually have a lot of similarities. So we use the same bittering hops uh, and the same uh, end-of-boil hops and dry hops, just at some different uh, different levels. So the Noble Roots IPA is definitely a little bit more towards a traditional IPA. I wouldn't call it... It's definitely not East Coast. It doesn't have that overly malty character, but it's also not... It's not West Coast. It's not ridiculously dry and ridiculously bitter. For that, we wanted to make an IPA that... It's a little more approachable. Sometimes non-craft beer drinkers, which we have a lot of in the Green Bay area, think of IPAs as overly bitter and burn your tongue. So for this, we have 
we, we put a healthy amount of uh, bittering hops in, and then we focus the rest of our hops in the last 10 minutes of the boil to give more flavor and, and aroma. And then we uh, dry hop it at about a pound per barrel. So a decent amount of dry hops in there. We use citra hops for that for that beer. So some grapefruit, some melon, and you, should, you get some of the same characteristics on the on the aroma as well. For the Cardinal IPA, again, similar concept. We want to. I don't want to burn your tongue. I want you to be able to drink two, three pints of it. With that beer, we use a decent amount of crystal malt, ranging from crystal 120, 80, and 40, to give it you know some breadiness, some caramel, some almost dark fruit character to balance with the hops, which is a, a little odd. So a lot of red IPAs that people make end up being red in color and then just an IPA. And that's not what we wanted to do. We wanted to have some some strong maltiness to balance out that the bitterness. That beer is actually uh, kind of inspired by a different Wisconsin brewer. So Vintage Brewing down in Madison, they make their Better Off Red, which not that similar. Theirs is more of a, theirs, it gears a little bit more towards the kind of just red colored uh, hoppy pale ale or IPA. Uh, so we, have, we use that as a jumping off point to build this beer. Well, it's a, a really am enjoying the Noble Roots IPA. The hops are really shining through on the nose. The citrus shining on the palate. Cardinals reminds me a lot of an English, more of an English style IPA, you know, sure. where the malt is more shining through than, yeah. than the hops. Yeah, it, it's honestly tough to pick a favorite between the two. Uh, they're, not that they're similar, it's just they're very good in very different ways. So, yeah, great job, guys. I picked the favorite. Oh, all right, which one's your favorite? I like the Noble Roots. I like the citrusy more. Okay. You know, everybody that's has good. an opinion. That's why we make uh, six different core beers, so everybody can find their own favorite. <laughs> no, but I love the color of the Cardinal. I don't know, it's really just nice. See, that's my description. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice. It's very nice. <laughs> And I've been uh, sipping on this Belgian here. This is really, really tasty. And according to you guys, uh, when we talked earlier, this is becoming one of your most popular beers. How, how popular is it getting? Yeah, th- this, this beer has kind of run away from the pack a little bit. And I think, I think the reason for it is that it brings in a different flavor profile for people that haven't drank craft beers before. We've heard from some people that it almost tastes wine-like to them. You know, like maybe, you know, maybe it's a little bit like a Riesling or a Pinot Grigio or something like that. I don't necessarily get that myself, but you know, I think some people are, are drawing that comparison because they're not used to that Belgian yeast character. You know, and, and with this beer, we use some sugar in the boil to kind of dry out the body a little bit, but also keep the alcohol a little bit higher. And we kept the grain bill relatively simple. We use European Pilsner malt, and so we wanted to use some really you know, kind of true-to-style uh, malt with that one. But the yeast really shines through on it because of the simplicity of the grain bill. And I think that is what's kind of lured people in a little bit and like, wow, this is just, this is a little bit different of an aftertaste for a beer. I've even had, my mom is a classic example. She doesn't drink beer at all. And she came in and she's like, is there anything I could have? And so I, I had her try the Habsburg Pretender and she's like, nah, this just tastes a lot like, you know, I, I remember beer tasting. I'm like, okay, well, that's not a good thing. <laughs> we think it's a little better than that. <laughs> but she had the, uh, the Blonde Belgian and she's like, no, this is different than anything I've ever had. It tastes a little bit like wine. And if my mom can like this beer, I, I can understand why it has become our bestseller. Yeah, it's it's really it's got the uh, the banana and clove uh, flavors going on. The esters seem really really subtle, uh, mm-hmm. so I, I can see that being very approachable for a person who hasn't uh, hasn't really gotten into the Belgian nails before. All right, so you got a really cool space, awesome beer. 
but as of right now, you can only get it here, right? What is the plan for distribution growth? Yeah, distribution. We had actually we had kind of planned even before now to be in distribution. Very fortunate, as busy as we were the first eight weeks, it kind of put us back a little bit on production. We are now probably looking in the next couple of weeks that we will we're going to self-distribute ourselves, and um, we're, we're going to pick handpick six or eight locations to start. Do a little research of what they have, you know, and, and what they have in local and what they're carrying for other craft beers, and then we'll sit down with the owner, do some tasting with them. And most of the ones we're looking at have been in our facility because they know about us and they've and they've been kind of. Besides us talking to them, they're actually recruiting us also to come to their facilities. So we'll kind of sit down and pick a, a brand or two that we feel is a good fit for us, just for what their clientele is, for what they're carrying, and also for where their location is. And it's important to us that we, when we do this, that we kind of cover some areas that we might not be getting people right now from, whether it's too far or it's just maybe a, different, a little bit different clientele. So we'll kind of go in that process in the next couple of weeks. So what's going to drive that decision point to engage with a distributor? You've had extensive background there. And what are some of the pros and cons of self-distribution versus working with someone? Yeah. Distributors have already, most of the distributors in Green Bay have already contacted us about, about signing on with them. Our, the three of us, our philosophy is that we'll let the brand take us there. You know, when, when that time comes that we have to make that decision, we will. What we really like about being able to self-distribute is that it's kind of, it's, we get to pick. You know, it's, it's our choice where it goes. There's a lot of variables when you pick where you want to be from, you know, from clientele, from what they have on tap, also from what they do, how they operate their business, from line cleaning to, you know, do they run them on special, do, how fast do they turn a barrel? You know, so those are all things that we're looking at before we make that decision. But it's nice that we can make that decision. Sometimes yeah. when you sign with a distributor, that's not your choice. It'll it'll definitely be a, a leap of faith at some point. I mean, th- this particular facility has some limitations to it for us from a production standpoint. If we're brewing once a week, we can really only brew 60 kegs a month. So if we're selling half that, say, through the tap room, you know, that's going to be always be number one priority for us. That's the business model we wanted. We wanted to build our brand through the tap room. You know, from there, it's just you're doing math a little bit. How much can we actually self-distribute? And, you know, there'll be a point where we're like, okay, we're kind of where we're capped out in this building, unless we're going to add another brew day, unless we're going to consider contracting. And those are things that could be next logical steps for us. But, you know, we're, we're two months in. We're, we're trying to get a gauge as to how this brand's going to take off in the market. And I think the next logical step is self-distribution. And we'll see how quickly they go through our product. And we'll just we'll make decisions from there. As Marv mentioned, we want the brand, we want the market to pull us. We don't want to push into it. I don't want to say that we're saturated. We're not. There's a lot of room for growth in this industry. But, but you know, when you look, when you go into the, the local retailers and you see 100 brands, we're a two-month-old brand. We, we want to have a little more confidence, I think, that... You know, a wider group of people are going to support our brand before we make that decision because that decision involves a lot of things for us. It would involve giving up our day jobs, it would involve investing in a new space potentially and, and more equipment and those are very big decisions. We're, I believe, right around the 150th brewery in Wisconsin and now there are, I always mix up the numbers, I think there's 5,300 breweries in the U.S. 
that could either be permit holders or physical breweries, either way, we get to look at what they're doing and see the mistakes that have been made in the past. And there's plenty of breweries that have overextended themselves, pushed into markets that they maybe shouldn't have gone into. And that's those are certainly things that we want to avoid. Yeah, it's pretty incredible that the craft brewing industry has become a, a much bigger market share of those 5,300 breweries. You mm-hmm. know, And it's it's fun for us as podcasters and fun for our listeners to sit down and listen to guys like you who are very young in this in this space, you know, because there's different approaches. You know, you can you can have a vision and want to just force that vision on people or you can do like you guys are doing, which is growing organically. What do people like? Where are they spending their dollars? So it, it's it's really fun for us uh, to sit down with you guys and talk talk through some of those issues. So we, again, thank you for uh, sitting down with us. Thanks for coming. Oh, you're Thanks welcome. So we also, a uh, big, big part of our podcast, we like to talk about cellar collections. You know, we've each got our own cellar collection. We like to throw some special bottles down there. Do you guys uh, cellar any beers? Uh, is it homebrew stuff? Do you have any whales in your basement? <laughs> I think, well, one that, so we have, I think, one or two bottles left of Lambic that we made as homebrewers. It has to be six, six seven, seven years, years ago. ago. So the last time we opened one was... May, when the day we signed on this building. So we opened oh. a 22 ounce. We opened a 22 ounce of that and we opened a 12 ouncer of Imperial, I think it was a Belgian triple craziness. I, don't, I can't even remember to be honest. <laughs> we'll just call it a strong Belgian yeah, ale. Yeah, ridiculously strong Belgian ale. So we got to, we opened uh, a bottle of that Lambic that we made seven years ago. I think we have one or two bottles left that we had talked about opening one. No, we did open one uh, the last time Tyler was home, right around the time when we were about to open. So I, I, I lied. We did we did have one recently. So I think we have one <laughs> bottle left. With that, with that, I remember when we made that and we went to the homebrew store to get our ingredients and the guy who owned the homebrew store had been doing this for years looked at us and said, are you crazy? <laughs> he goes, homebrewers don't make Lambics. He goes, you just don't do that. You know, and it's actually been it's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, it just kind of stinks that we're down to one or two bottles. Yeah, yeah. We actually had to brew it at my house, which is not too far from, from Marv's house, but where we, where we were home brewing because we at least knew that, that there was a pen, potential for cross-contamination if we introduced some of the, that uh, black dough and, and, and uh, all those, uh, those goodies and those beers. In the same uh, in the same space, so yeah, that's one that, that we've done ourselves. Personally, I'm a big fan of Central Waters, you know, and so I have some of their stouts and barley wines and Scotch ales lying down in, in, in my basement. And then um, had the uh, opportunity to go to Asheville, North Carolina, last spring break, and you, know, you want to talk about a beer mecca? My goodness, it's a city about the size of Green Bay, but it's got about 42 breweries, or it's probably more than that by now. I stopped at one of my favorites, which is Wicked Weed make great sour beers there and picked up a few bottles and I'm laying those down right now. I think I have, I, the last time I went out to New York, which was about a year and a half ago, I picked up some, some evil twin, the, the Danish guys that gypsy brew. Mm-hmm. So I have a couple of bottles of their stuff sitting around. Actually one I've been, a Goza I've been itching to drink for a while and just haven't, maybe tonight. Maybe <laughs> I just convinced myself. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> have, haven't found the right special occasion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then for me, it's um, usually when I go places, I get IPAs. The problem that I have is that they don't last long because I'm, I'm a huge IPA guy. So after about a week or two, and it's sitting there, and it's like, oh, well, well, and then I open it. Now we're so right. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> 
Well, the whole aging thing is interesting because we've been getting feedback from brewers either from in Milwaukee. They actually have an aging program now. Mm -hmm. They have a little hourglass that kind of promotes aging your beer. But some of the feedback we've gotten is like, why are you aging beer? I'm putting it in the bottle because it's ready to drink now. And that's a very interesting divide. I guess, what are your guys' thoughts on that in general? Yeah, I was was listening to your Half Acre podcast just earlier today, and um, I I tend to agree with with what they say, is that, you know, as long as the brewer has taken the care to put in the proper amount of time, then by all means, I don't think you should age that beer particularly unless unless you want to i mean people have their own reasons for for trying things out and we we don't want to discourage that by any means if they want if they want to see what flavors develop that's fine but usually the brewers know best as to how how good a shape that beer is going to be in when it's released and i think it was matt from half acre that that said that and i'm that that's actually a really good point it's just you have to make sure that you're doing that as a brewer so that, that's kind of my take, and I can agree with them. When you age a beer, you bet, it better be a style that handles oxidation well. I mean, and, and a lot of beers don't. I uh, personally, there, there's a few beers and breweries that, even even putting beers in 20, I, I feel like putting beers in bombers encourages people holding on to them longer than they should be. When an IPA really, you should just go buy the bomber, make sure it's cold, and drink it. <laughs> Period. Don't wait around. There's no point. Life's We're, too short, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> but, you know, I, I definitely agree with the point. If The brewers should be controlling when that goes out. And, you know, there's some beers that will change in a good way over time, but they should be putting it out at a point when it's good to drink. So uh, any plans for you guys as far as a barrel aging program, anything like that? Uh, I mean, I know it's, in a, it's a limited space, so <laughs> you might yeah. have to put them in the rafters or something. Yeah. But, uh, you know, people will be using them on the roof. Seats. There you go. Yeah. We'd certainly <laughs> like to try it. It's not something we really did. We never true barrel aged as home brewers. We did some stuff with oak chips. It's certainly something we'll, we'll do. Once we uh, get our feet underneath us a little bit more. We get a little more space (laughs) at some point. Once you get that six-month mark, right? Sure. Yeah, that's a good good time to do it. A lot of things we want to do. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that, that'll do it for us. It uh, looks like there's no more beer here. Thank you guys for from the Tap Takeover podcast. Uh, this is going to conclude our, our Green Bay draft weekend vacation. Extravaganza. Uh, extravaganza. <laughs> uh, so for me, for Alex. I'm Jim. Jesus. Jordan. Alex. Marvin. Thank you guys so much. This has been a solid non-fail production. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers. There's no